Debbie Mann, and this is Keep Your Pecker Up podcast. I'm so excited. This is my oncologist, Dr. Mala Ball, and I was so thrilled to be able to track her down and to get her to come on here. So Dr. Ball, thank you so much for being on my podcast. And yeah, I'm excited that you're here. It's my pleasure. It's always great to hear from patients when it's uh, good news, something uplifting, and, and good to know people are doing well. Yeah, my I, I was telling my Dragon Boat team and uh, my cancer chicks that you were coming on and they were all so excited because some of them were your patients and some of them have heard of you. So again, thank you very much for being here. And here we go. You know, I'm going to ask the questions as best I can and we'll just see where all this goes. You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask is, is there any... When you meet someone for the first time, because I remember sitting in your office and waiting for you to come in, like I was a bundle of nerves. For you meeting a patient for the first time, what's that like? You know, that first visit is a whole lot happening on my end and on your end. And I'm trying to also think about where somebody's coming from. And it might be dependent, you know, I've got patients with young kids, or you know, people who have lived with their children and they're elderly and they need support. So I'm trying to, when I'm reading the notes about a patient, figure out where they're coming from. And I think the most important thing that I need to do in 45 minutes when I walk in the room is to establish rapport on somebody where there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of, I don't wanna say baggage, but there's, they've talked to their friends who've had experiences with cancer or they've heard about somebody and I don't know any of that. And I'm trying to meet them at a place where I can earn their trust because we have to go on a journey together and have a relationship. And it's sometimes reading the body language of somebody or their tone of voice or who they're with. Can I make a joke to lighten the mood? Can I smile? Or is this a very serious, somber person who's upset? I mean, There's a lot of emotion. Sometimes people are genuinely terrified or scared. They never thought they'd be in that position. Sometimes there's anger. I've walked into rooms where somebody feels that somebody dropped the ball. The mammogram wasn't read properly or their family doctor didn't follow up a proper, whatever that issue is, justified or not. And you've got to address that and get the information across and establish your rapport and make sure people, and I usually start out by saying, you look nervous. I I think we're going to get a lot of information and you're going to feel better just knowing now where to turn. People have a lot of sleepless nights before coming to see us and they've had a lot of questions. And now just walking out with my card and even if, and you know, you'd be surprised how many people don't remember a thing from that first meeting, except how they felt around me, or if I was reassuring So sometimes I'll say, if you remember one thing from today, because I know you're feeling a lot of emotion, it's this. So yeah, there's a lot you're trying to do in a short period of time. And I must say, the pandemic has added a whole other layer. I have patients who've never seen my face behind, you know, because I'm behind a mask, or I've done a consult on the phone, and I don't have the benefit of reading their body language. How is that for you? That's one of the questions is the pandemic. How has that changed your practice? It's added a whole other layer of complexity. So that ability to establish rapport, I'll often spend a lot more time on the phone because I need, in a patient I've never met before, I need them to know that I've read their chart. I am on top of what's going on. They can trust me. And 
there are also the patients as just as you said there's fears that they've something's going to get missed because of the pandemic patients ask me all the time you know is my repeat surgery going to get delayed because they're canceling everything in the province and those are questions you know i don't necessarily have the answers to but i can reassure patients that i'm going to be their advocate yeah um, it's added a level of complexity it's added a level of stress for the patients and for me as well i used to think patients would be really happy not to have to come in i always try to reduce the number of visits and and now i'm finding that in my patients they're so anxious that they are craving for face to face reassurance can you just check this can i can i see you and that was something I've been really surprised about, that wow. they'd be willing to brave the risk of going through the hospital to come to see me in person and expose themselves potentially. I just know from for me personally, now I didn't go through this with COVID, but there was something very calming about being in your office and having that conversation with you. And not only you to read me, but me to read you. Uh, how much I read of you, I don't know, because I was so into my head was so into the disease that but there was something it's just I think that energy that calming energy that you personally bring I don't have any experience with any other oncologists but there was something calming about that for me you know I think that you know everybody has a million things going through their minds you know like I have young kids and I have a husband and I've got other patients but I sort of say to a patient regularly maybe I didn't say it to you but I'll somebody who's anxious they know we're busy. Patients will be very understanding if I get a page or I get a phone. Some now the nurses just call your cell phone directly. So I might have to take a call in the middle of a consultation, but I'll say to them, you know, when this door is closed, this, you're the most, this is the most important interaction. And so it's my job. And I think, you know, a lot of doctors try to do this is be in the moment, listen and make somebody feel like I might be thinking this patient's case is not as serious as the case I'm going to see. But that doesn't mean that this person doesn't get their time or isn't as scared. This isn't the biggest thing on their plate at that moment. So you have to make people understand that you take their worry seriously. And you did say that to me. I do remember you saying that to me because it just gave me some comfort. Because, you know, you hear stories. <laughs> you hear stories from, from people that aren't always positive dealing with, with doctors. And I personally never experienced any of that. As horrible a diagnosis, the experience was calming and I didn't have any doubt about what was going on. Have you found that patients have had any misconceptions about oncologists or the cancer clinic, the nurses? Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily take things personally, but I do feel like sometimes I walk into a room and there is somebody with a preconceived notion about they're kind of not going to buy in to what we do, general allopathic medicine in general, and they're skeptical from the get-go. And I've had patients say, well, you know, I know you would offer me chemo because that's what you do. You're big pharma and you sell chemo. And so that's tough because I'm not selling anything. I mean, I think it's important for patients to know that I get paid the same, whether you take the treatment or not, like oncologists in the province of Ontario are salaried. And so we're really trying to give you the best care that we can. And misconceptions are sometimes that we have something else to gain. And 
try to change somebody's mind and, Mm -hmm. and, and sell them a bill of goods, like sell them an idea. But my job is to say, okay, it sounds like you're not interested, but my job is to give you the information. So hear me out. And here's my card. And if you change your mind, you can call me, you can call your family doctor anytime. And I had a patient actually last two weeks ago who I saw a year and a half ago and gave her the information. And then I called her for a follow-up and she didn't start the tablets. Then I called her. I said to my nurse, can you call her again in a month? She didn't start the tablets. And then she sort of said, I'll call you guys. And she did. And she called and she said, I want more information and I want to start screening and I want to be seen. So like I said, my job is to give the information and be sincere. And some people are going to have that rapport with you or believe in what you're talking about and others aren't. And you just accept it. I'll, I'll just a personal note on that one. I remember when you were trying to find um, the estrogen blocker for me and wasn't working. And all you encouraged me to do is to give it a go, try it for six weeks. And if it's not working, then I support you to not do it. Because that you and I had a long conversation about that. And that was, again, that was, you weren't forcing me to do anything I didn't want to do, but you gave me all the whys and wherefores. And I had to make a decision for what worked for me in the moment. As we as patients, if we can understand that, that you're just giving us what we need. And in the end, it is pretty much up to us, I think. You know, I feel like a lot of things on social media are about conspiracy theories. I'm not trying to get off topic, but I do feel like there are a couple of patients, you know, not the majority by any means, you know, one every several months will have more of a suspicion about the treatments. I don't blame people for wanting to be thorough. Ask the questions, find out. I can't name every possible side effect, but I can tell you what the most common ones are. And I'm going to tell you about what the most serious ones are. And then could I have told you that you might have, uh, you know, GI upset or an upset, you know, maybe I didn't say that. So we're, we're also limited by information overload and every potential side effect doesn't have equal weight in terms of frequency or, or things like that. So art, like I said, I just want to make sure people walk out of there armed with information. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's different for every person. I mean, with the Rimadex, I'll just go back to that people, my friends of mine who were on it weren't having the side effects that I had, and I couldn't live with my side effect, you know, depression was not something I could live with, but yeah, and work with your doctors to make sure you're making the right decision. Being a good physician doesn't mean you're able to get rid of all the side effects, right? There's no perfect medication. And so sometimes when I'm talking to people about, let's say tamoxifen versus arimidex, they hear about one and they're like, Oh, that doesn't sound good. And then they're like, is there anything else? And I go, yeah, there's also this. Oh, well, that sounds worse. (laughs) And I'm like, well, this is it. You have a very serious diagnosis and you have to decide if it's right for you. On that same note, what about more natural treatments? So natural medicine in in conjunction with traditional. Mm, I come from a cultural background where everything is Ayurvedic natural medicine, right? So I grew up with my mom, make this tea and, you know, have this and you'll be fine. But I think that the risk with some natural treatments is that they don't play nice with some of the drugs that we use. And so I encourage people to be open and honest. I think that when doctors say absolutely not, then patients aren't going to tell you. And we know patients are using natural products because we can see like what's being sold or how many people go to the naturopath down the street or my, my, the naturopaths will tell me, oh, I see a bunch of your patients. I know you. So I know my patients are going. So my biggest thing is to be open about it. And then I can advise them about what is safe. 
because natural products are still chemicals and they still go through the liver or the kidneys and they can interact with the things that we're doing. And it's possible that they're completely benign depending on what we do, or they're possibly going to make the chemotherapy or the hormone therapy less or more effective or less or more toxic. So I have seen bad things happen. Mm. So I just say, you know, tell me what you're doing. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure we're not doing something counterproductive. There are studies on natural products. So people should ask their doctor, go to the chemotherapy or hospital oncology pharmacist with a list of what you're taking. Many things are actually okay, but some things are going to increase the chance of blood clots or reduce the efficacy of your hormone tablet or things like that. We don't want to, if you're going to go through the treatment, the, the, the pain of coming in or getting an IV or what have you, then it should be for benefit. That's all. Well, that's good. I think that's really valid information. Chemo Brain, Hope Springs here in Kitchener, the cancer support group did something on Chemo Brain. And, and I... I'm just curious, do you, have you seen that in your patients? Absolutely. So you Absolutely. believe in it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, to different people, to different extents, and it definitely exists. There's scientific data on cognitive effects during treatment, or maybe even lingering effects. It's a risk benefit ratio consideration. Have I seen people become severely cognitively slowed? No. But have I seen people say, you know, during chemo, I kept losing my keys or whatever, right? <laughs> Definitely possible. I think that certain mental activities can help keep you sharp, like crossword puzzles or Sudoku. And your brain is not a muscle, but it's like flex that muscle, you know, flex it, keep using it, use those synapses, use the power of recall. Nowadays, there's like apps for brain exercises. Those things all help keep the synapses in your brain open and flowing. But I definitely think it exists. Well, I know personally it did for me. <laughs> wasn't easy going back to work. I went back, I think my last treatment was in July and I started to go back in September, October of the same year. And I couldn't remember customers' names. It was hard. It came back, but it took some patience and some I time. I felt like that after I had kids. So <laughs> I think like, you know, there's all kinds of things that affect our brains. And I know that chemo is definitely one of them. Um, and I don't even know if this is part of your area in the in this whole journey of cancer. But some women choose to have a mastectomy or a double mastectomy. Is that something you because that's usually a surgery, but do you work with a surgeon on that or? Well, patients see their surgeon at the beginning of the journey, and then they see me if they're taking chemo for sure, very often. And so they'll say, you know, should I have had the other breast off or I need to get another surgery to fix the margin and take off a little bit more tissue in case there's something left behind. Should I get the whole breast removed? So we do have those discussions. And it's really interesting because I think in the eighties, surgeons were, the old school surgeons were a little bit more aggressive. So more women had mastectomies and women were saying, wait, nobody's asked me if I want to keep my breast. And then, so the teaching for surgeons was, breast conservation as much as possible. And I see the pendulum now swung the other way where the surgeons are saying, you don't need a mastectomy, but the patients are saying, I want it as, as you were mentioning in one uh, other message to me was I want it off. You know, I, I I'm too anxious that I don't want to ever go through this again. So maybe I should have double mastectomy. So Patients are asking for more surgery and the surgeons are tending to say no. <laughs> so that's just been an interesting kind of cultural shift. Sometimes it's medically indicated, like if you carry a genetic mutation and there's a very high risk of you getting a second cancer, so you do it for prevention. Sometimes it's because the cancer is really big 
and you know maybe there was some tissue left behind and the surgeon can only get it all by removing the breast but i think it's a very individual thing and i think now during the pandemic i have a lot of patients asking for more surgery and resources are slim so the surgeons are saying i would oblige you if you want to have you know a second surgery or but not for the next year because we're just trying to get the actual cancer cases done get the cancers out yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine what this has done for you and your profession. I mean, this, this whole backlog of, you know, I think that it's the, the physicians, like you hear about politicians making plan, but plans, but we don't kind of wait around for them to tell us what to do. We actually at our, at my present hospital, got a group of people together. And once a week, we went through literally every single case and said, who of these are the highest priority? Who's going to get chemotherapy first and we could put off their surgery? Who's going to need surgery right away? Um, what other testing maneuvers can we do to figure out if this is something more aggressive that needs to be done? You know, so, so I just want, I also want patients to know that even when we're not face-to-face -face in a visit, we're thinking about you a lot. Like you've got dedicated surgeons, radiation oncologists, like a whole team, pathologists are at all these meetings that you never see their faces, radiologists. And we're trying to figure out what's best for you as well as for your neighbors, all the people in the community, right? That's good to know. So one of the other questions I had was all the emerging technologies and options and alternative treatments, how do you keep on top of it? And yeah, how do you decide whether somebody can best take advantage of that? You know, I think as a, a body of of physicians, we educate ourselves, there's meetings, there's journals, we meet amongst ourselves. So one of like, it, it's happening at all these levels. So one of the things we do is we have a multidisciplinary case conference. And if a patient's case has a nuance, something that we need to address, you know, well, you know, the, should this patient have more surgery? Should they have radiation? You know, so we'll get together and we'll talk about your case. And then we also have meetings amongst oncologists from other hospitals, updates on breast cancer. And then we have international meetings. So we're always trying to educate ourselves. And I, this is a really exciting time to be in oncology. We're talking about modalities of treatment that didn't exist when I was even in training, like mm. immunotherapy and targeted treatments. You know, in the 90s, the drug Herceptin was just br brand new introduction, right, into the space. And it was only for patients with metastatic disease. And I've seen during my career from when I was a medical student, we were using it for patients very early for metastatic disease. Now we're using it in so many different scenarios. There's all these different generations now of drugs that are like Herceptin that target the same receptor in breast cancer cells. So we've learned so much. And so I feel like it's my obligation to be able to advocate for my patients. I can't do that if we don't take the time to educate ourselves. What about Canada versus other countries? I can't even begin to imagine that we are not at the leading edge or bleeding edge of things. Is that true? Or is that just I think that uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question, because I don't know if you know, Debbie, I originally came from the US and I moved to Canada when I got married. So oh, I, had no, I worked, didn't know that. Yeah, so I had worked in the US system. And for years, I would, my patients would say, you know, would I have better treatment? They would, you know, should I go to the US and explore other options? And for a long time, I would say, absolutely not. We have the same agents here. And I would actually say that Canadian physicians are more evidence-based 
you know, we are rather that, you know, something comes out in the US and everybody flocks to use it. Whereas we'll wait for the evidence. We'll wait to make sure it's safe. But, you know, I, I am worried. I think now we do have, you know, we continue to have state-of-the-art care. I'm beginning to worry that drugs are so expensive and we have one pie of healthcare dollars and to divide that pie up and make sure everybody gets what they need is getting the drug costs have just skyrocketed mm. for the province. And so I'm worried that when I go to these meetings and I hear about literally four new HER2 directed drugs, I think to myself, okay, are these helpful? Are they useful for patients? And then gosh, when are we going to get them? Because they are so expensive and that, and the studies are very preliminary. And in Canada, we're going to wait for the definitive data. So I would say we do get very, very high quality care, but I think patients need to advocate for continuing that to, for that to continue to happen because we as physicians are, are begging for access to newer drugs. But if you look up how much drugs cost, like a year of certain drugs can, you know, that a patient needs might be 60 to $80,000 per patient. Yeah. I was wondering if that was part of the, the challenge for Canada because of, and I think we have stricter approval guidelines on yeah. on certain drugs, which is, good, which is yeah. fantastic, right? We've seen drugs that look like they're going to be the next best thing. Everybody starts using it. And then a study comes out and says, nope, doesn't help. That's actually one of the things that happened. Uh, and I don't know if this, you're going to ask me about this, about immunotherapy drugs in breast cancer. Okay. There was a drug called atezolizumab that came out with a positive study and everybody was like, where can we get this? I actually treated a few patients with it through a compassionate access. And then a study came out several months later saying, well, it's not as great as we thought it was. It still has utility, but we have to figure out who needs it. What are the right patients? Because these drugs cause side effects, right? And so the preliminary data doesn't tell the whole story. And um, we've seen drugs that we're supposed to be the next big thing that sort of fizzled out. I think it's just important. Like I said, you know, patient advocacy is really important where physicians are always, we have meetings with the province and we tell them what we think are the most important next things to fund. Then they do an analysis of it, looking at all the studies. But, you know, I think that things, the, the margins are getting tight <laughs> with drugs. Yeah, control. I can only imagine. I did want to ask you, at what point do you tell a patient being honest with them that there's nothing more we can do. I mean, that conversation, I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think if you have a patient that you have established that rapport with that you've been looking after for a while, that conversation should never come as a complete surprise. Mm. Um, so I have patients where I know that they have stage four disease, which is incurable. I know that the day that I met, met them, it doesn't mean it's not treatable. So I will say, I'm going to offer you treatments. And I think these are the chances that's going to work, but there's not going to be a day that we're going to get rid of this. So it's harder when you don't know the patient, you walk in for the first time and, and they're not a candidate really for anything. That's a much tougher discussion, but I think it's really important to be honest because you might be wanting to spare feelings or even physicians want to spare their own discomfort. It's not pleasant or easy, but somebody has an obligation to get their affairs in order, see the people they want to see, say the things they want to say. So then I'll say to somebody, you know, we're going to prepare for the worst and hope for the best because you know you do what you need to do i will work on your treatment and and see how it goes and we're going to keep having this conversation periodically but i don't know that if you have a patient you've been looking after for a few years that you could walk in your room and say well i just saw your scans and and that's it there's no, you know like people should know that 
what what could be around the corner when we're at a fork at the road of a decision. I mean, I think that, you know, I only, I don't know what other physicians say to their patients. I only know what happens in front of my own patients and how you deliver that kind of news is also important. And sometimes it's hard to say as, you know, we sort of throw the question with, you know, you got not no other options. Like, I don't know that I, I say that I might start to say something like, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to check things out. We're going to do a scan. And, and if it's good, we're going to keep going. If it doesn't show good news, then we're going to talk about these options or tell somebody that you're worried. Or if patients ask about specific timelines, then I will answer that, but it's, it's an uncomfortable thing because I, we don't know, we don't have crystal balls. So I don't sort of come right out and say things like that, but I'll say, you know, I I think it's time for you to spend as much time with your family because I don't know how much longer the treatment is going to help. I mean, these are very personalized, individualized discussions based on where the patient is coming from. But I do think that there are different ways to get the message across, but I do think it's fair for people to know. Because the last thing is to, I don't want to have regrets that I didn't try hard enough. And I don't want them to have regrets that they didn't have the time to see their best friend that they wanted to say goodbye to or something. Yes. And you, you're in a profession where every hour of every day is emotional. In my humble opinion, there's got to be at least dealing with the patients. How do you take care of yourself in all of this? I mean, when we talked last week, you did say something to me. You said, I'm, I'm a mom, I'm an, a doctor, and I have to take care of myself. So how do you do that? Um, you know, I think having other things in your life definitely helps, you know, coming to the house and the kids are waiting for you. That definitely helps kind of shift the emotional gears. But I think that you have to do some level of self-care because, eventually, you know, your kids grow up or they don't run to the door when you get home anymore, um, or they don't need you as physically as much. They actually need more emotional support too. So you do need to have some element of self-care for me. I exercise a little bit. I'm definitely not a fitness freak. I, um, read or socialize. We lean on each other as oncologists. Like sometimes I say to my colleagues, like nobody else can, I can't talk to about this stuff with my husband. He'll say, oh, this is, this is heavy. And, and other oncologists understand. So we have to support each other. But I think the pandemic has also been another level of isolation. Patients have it. We have it too as physicians and uh, we feel the burnout. Yeah. Somebody asked me, it was my sister actually. Um, she, she's asked, what about asking her what advice she gives folks who are supporting people on their cancer journey? When I talk to uh, our cancer chicks, we have during our, during our treatment, we hear some, we hear some advice and some platitudes, but people for the most case are terrified because they don't know what to do, what to say to you. What We don't know what we need either, but is there any one thing you can say or offer that yeah, might I, be I, I was giggling because, uh, you know, I have, there's so many well-intentioned friends and family and they'll, you know, say, you know, I was watching a YouTube video and cinnamon, you need cinnamon because cinnamon <laughs> cures cancer or like, you know, and it's well-intentioned and this person doesn't really know uh, what the patient's going through or they just want to be helpful. And uh, sometimes things can be dangerous. I mean, I think ways to be helpful are just to see how you can lighten somebody's load, you know, help them with meals or give them a ride or make sure they're not lonely, call them to check up on them. I would say those are really important things. But another thing that's really important just for anybody going through anything big, like even grieving or what have you, 
when you have a cancer diagnosis, everybody hears and they rush to your side, but sometimes the worry for a patient actually begins when they finish their treatment because they're not coming into the cancer center every three weeks to get their infusion and they're not seeing me every, you know, and they're not getting the scans anymore. And, and that's when, and everyone's like, great, you look great. Your hair has grown back. You're going back to work. Okay. Business as usual. But that's, I think when a lot of people need somebody to call them and check up on them and say, are you doing okay? Do you worry? Because you assume that when somebody looks normal, they're back to normal. And I have patients who I've seen after a year and they're, they look, they're back to work and everybody expects their brain to be working like it used to be at work and looking after their kids and, and they've stopped getting help with meals or getting a night off or so that would be my advice in the, in the flurry of activity, there's always people around, maybe wait and see when things die down and see what people need. Oh, that's a good point. Have you, what have you learned from your patients? I've learned so much from my patients. Like we're not treating a number or a pathology report. There are so many circumstances that go into how a patient gets to where they are. If they have help at home, they have young kids, or how are they going to get to their treatments? What are their priorities? If you ask somebody who's got young kids and they keep getting booked for eight o'clock blood draws, they'll say, I, you know, I say, how's that working for you? She goes, I can never take my kids to the bus stop. Okay, well, why don't we request that your blood work be done at 10? So you can get breakfast, you can spend some time with your kids, drop them off. You'll be done by 2.30. You can be home by the time they get home. So I've learned just to, to listen or even ask, but I, I've learned about how generous people can be when they're going through the biggest thing about their uh, biggest thing in their life. They'll still ask me if I'm handling the pandemic okay. And if I'm looking after myself and I've just learned so much, like that is such a generous spirit. Patients are very, very good to me. Well, you're good to us. So <laughs> Thank you. you're welcome. I think I've asked all the questions that I really do want to ask Dr. Ball, but there is one, one last question. Is there a touching or poignant moment that you have experienced with any of your patients? I mean, gosh, like several times a week, my patients will have me crying or like, I'm just flooded with examples. You know, when I've given patients bad news and I'm, you know, emotional myself, I've had so many patients say to me, this must be hard for you. And I'm giving them the bad news. I'm telling them there's something happening in their brain or that, you know, it's time for them to be admitted to hospital or they can't be at home anymore. And they'll be sensitive to me. That really, I, I wonder if I would be like that or if I would be just engrossed in, in myself. And my, uh, I had a patient the other day say, it was one of the nicest things I've heard in the last several months. She said, I feel like I'm your only patient because of the way, you know, we, we interact. And I said, well, you know, when the door is closed, you are. And so just the gratitude or nice notes that people send, you know, it's not always patients. There have been patients that were upset or angry or that you'll never be able to be aligned with, but you got to make sure you remember. And, and that's things like how we help us help ourselves with burnout is we try to focus on the people that really appreciate what we do. Cause I want the, I want my patients to know that it's not just about the visit. Like we're thinking about you all the time, trying to steer you in the best direction that we can. It's ultimately up to you what path you take, but it's our job to steer you and be upfront and, and give you the best information. Well, thank you for being the captain on our cancer ship, Dr. Ball. <laughs> Pleasure. Pleasure. So I think I mentioned I, I belong to two separate groups, my, my dragon boat team 
here locally and we're all breast cancer survivors. And then there's about 13 cancer chicks, what we call ourselves the cancer chicks from Hope Springs. And they're all very excited that I was, that I'd reached out to you and that you agreed to do this and they send you their love and their support and their gratitude to be able to answer these questions. That's great. My pleasure. My pleasure. It was lovely talking to you. And this is Keep Your Pecker Up podcast. Don't forget to hit don't forget to hit subscribe for the next podcast and we'll see you on the other side. Thank you. Bye.